as the snow flies On a cold and gray Chicago morning A poor little baby child is born in the ghetto And his mama cries Cause if there's one thing she don't need Is another hungry mouth to feed in the ghetto Well, don't you understand The child needs a helping hand He'll grow to be an angry young man someday I Take a look at you and me Are we too blind to see Or Do we simply turn our heads and look the other way Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls We're back, Matt We, we are, are back So back right now <laughs> oh man, we are so back at it. <laughs> feels good to be back. Oh man, it feels so good to be back on the internet, talking to you on the internet. I to know people on the internet. The internet is where it's at, so I'm glad to be here. <laughs> but uh, welcome to Don't Be the Trolls, where we've toured like a bitch, but we never got rich. That's right. That is so. <laughs> sa- that is so sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's right. Today we're talking about that common myth. That hard work equals success or financial success. Right. Um, and speaking of financial success, Matt, we have new patrons. Yeah, we are getting so financially successful with our new patrons. Uh, we'd love to welcome, and that's uh, that's patrons at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash trolls. That's how you support this show, which comes out free on a weekly basis, and we talk about things you like, and you get to enjoy just a couple of rascals talking nonsense in your ears. For yeah. free, but if you like what you hear and you want to support us and encourage us, you can go to patreon.com slash don't feed the trolls and be like Mel Smith and Kinley Wallace, our patrons this week. Um, we, we might have lost a few over the summer because we were just only doing patron only episodes, troll talks as we call them. But we're back. As we said, oh. we are back. We are back. <laughs> we're so and, back. Uh... So, so support us as 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 we come back and yeah, and help help free us up to do some cool episodes this fall on things that we think you'll like. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Every time a little email comes in, boom, someone supports the podcast. It helps us go. Let's hustle down some great guests. Let's put a little more effort into this podcast. So it it only helps the show get better when you help us out. Just a coffee a month is uh, all we ask, really. And that really helps us keep the lights on. One pumpkin spice latte a month, right? One pumpkin spice latte <laughs> just this month. Because next month, you're going to be over that pumpkin spice. You're right. going to be moving on to... What's the... Uh, I don't know. The Christmas spice? <laughs> candy cane? Candy, candy cane, cane spice? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Nutmeg. But, uh, <laughs> nutmeg spice. you got to be careful with that nut- nutmeg. Too much nutmeg is toxic. I don't know if you know that out there, but it's true. <laughs> See, you wouldn't know that unless you would listen to this podcast. You wouldn't know how yeah. toxic nutmeg is. No it one wants, be. they don't want you to know. They want to Google keep you it. in the dark. Big nutmeg wants to keep you in the dark about yeah. toxic <laughs> nutmeg. Listen <laughs> to our wise words and Google it and you will see that too much nutmeg is toxic. But today's topic, today's topic. That's right. It's, it hits home for both of us because we spent a good portion of our 20s working 24-7 chasing the dreams of success in the music industry, Matt. Yes, we did. We, you know that. I do. You were there too. I was there. Um, we met on one of the worst tours in the history of tours, which is the Warp Tour. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. And we were both doing it in vans. 
Yeah. Which is just miserable. Yeah. And uh, loading. Sometimes we 8 a.m. Yeah. in the morning and then it's just hot all day and you don't have AC and you're dying. Not but... to mention the 400 miles you drove that night before. Exactly. Because And someone always didn't sleep. That's the fun yeah. part. And you had to take a dump in the... <laughs> The hottest in the port outhouse. Potty. Yeah. <laughs> you try to it get there stunk. before the fans do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you would do this all summer, mm-hmm. and then you would go right back out on tour in the fall. Yep. And then you'd be lucky if you got home for Christmas, and right. your parents would look at you like, hey, you're a flake. Quit sleeping on our couch. Right. Exactly. So we got used, we got used to the whole like tour for months straight, and then come home with nothing to show for it. I mean, nothing. <laughs> We maybe have, we have our memories. Maybe, yeah, and we yeah we had our memories, but it's like three to four months of the hardest work you've ever done, right? And the most mentally exhausting work you've ever done, and then right. maybe you had five hundred bucks in your bank account when you got home. You know, we were wealthy and it, with character. We learned a lot. We gained a lot of character of those years, Nate. Oh yeah, all those arguments that you <laughs> scratched your head and you didn't know if you won them or lost them completely. <laughs> That was the worst. It was like, did I win that argument or yeah. did I lose? So today we're going to talk about success and work ethic and how those two things play together. Our guest today is Sarah Shotwell. She is a teacher and a writer and a musician in the band Fialta, which some of ex-Sherwood bros are in. Um, they make some cool music and you guys have toured with them as well. So maybe people are familiar with Fialta. But yeah. uh, she recently wrote uh, something on her Facebook page, and it triggered Nate so hard he got angry. No, just kidding. You, uh, you liked it. You thought it was an interesting topic, and I think it is too. Uh, so why don't we just read her post, which is kind of the the primer, the the setup for our conversation. Actually, Nate, just read the first paragraph because I think it summarizes it, and then we'll yeah. bring Sarah on. So here's a quick blurb of what she wrote on Facebook, and uh, it says, "Quote: One of the biggest myths I have heard repeated throughout my life." by wealthy people is that there is a direct correlation between hard work and financial success, and that this is the virtue of capitalism. The notion that hard work equals money is a lovely idea. It connects with our pioneering American spirit in a very special way. There is nothing wrong with a good work ethic, a sense of personal industry, and a desire to be rewarded for our labors, but great injustice happens when we start applying inverse logic to this principle in our judgments of others. Example, if I have money, it means I worked hard. So if you don't have money, it means you didn't work hard. This is childlike reasoning, and it's time to grow up. Those are some tough words. I love that inverse logic. All right, well, let's see if we can get Sarah on the line and she can talk about this in in detail. And maybe I'll even argue with her for the sake of argument, because I think I generally agree, but... You know, I like to argue, so we'll see what I can do. (laughs) Here we go. Welcome, Sarah Shotwell. We brought you on this podcast to talk about the biblical interpretation if marriage <laughs> procreation was only missionary position. What's your take? Uh, my take would be that's <laughs> private. <laughs> 
that was a joke that Matt and I had. It's like, let's, <laughs> let's bring a girl on and ask her a really awkward question. But uh, in the Bible, <laughs> what's the only proper way? Yeah. I exactly. have not read the whole Bible, so I don't know. <laughs> well, there's well, then. there's plenty of there's plenty of ways to interpret it. So. Well, that's all on the podcast today, folks. Sarah doesn't know. And Bye everybody. I told Nate that would be a bad way to start, but he he did it anyway, so. <laughs> Sometimes you just it's have pretty... to keep your listeners totally like not ready for the what's coming next. Yeah, you know hooked. I, mean? I I teach high school and kids these days have the innate ability to find out every single thing their teachers do outside of school. So I have no doubt some of them are going to be listening to this. Oh, so do yeah, you think that's so you maybe like re- reality TV culture? Like they all kind of grow up just knowing everything about celebrities because they watch their TV shows, and so there's no there's really no privacy anyways. Uh, I think so. Although my kids are not so big on TV, um, I think they're just really, really curious about what their teachers are up to. Right. What uh, what, what grade do you teach? I teach high school night through twelfth, high school history. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. you and you, I yeah. assume you went to school. Hey, oh. I was gonna ask her all this <laughs> Sorry, stuff. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping in. It was all. It was all hey. part. She was naturally guiding us to her qualifications. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Let's do the intro. Official intro. Welcome, Sarah Shotwell. We Thank just read you. on our side of the podcast. We read the intro to our to the listeners uh, that you posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago. Um, it got like 23 shares, and. Just for starters, I'll ask two questions. Tell us why it's time for us to grow up with our childlike views on economics and input versus output, <laughs> and some like some background on you, what you know, school yeah. or whatever you want to talk about, what you do for fun and the band life and stuff like that. Sure, yeah. So um, I didn't mean it to sound that combative, but when you read it back to me, <laughs> um, <laughs> I I. Grew up outside of Sacramento in a pretty um, conservative, evangelical, and Mormon affluent community. So um, kind of a disclaimer is that anything I have to say about poverty is um, from an outsider's perspective, but also um, I'm my concerns are really about how I was raised, and I think some of the cultural mythology and the uh, assumptions that undergirded a lot of how I thought in the early part of my life. So I'm reacting against that a little bit with the posts that I made. Um, But I also teach high school history, as I mentioned. And so I do teach a lot about economics. And we have a lot of interesting conversations come up about this topic in my class with high school students. And so um, it's something that's been on my mind and something that's been on my mind a lot, especially lately. Yeah. And you talk a little bit about like the the notion of hard work equals money or success and how people kind of use that argument. Um, you know, wealthy people will say, uh, you know, if you work hard, you make money. I worked hard. I made money. If you're if you don't have money, you're not working hard, which is sort of an inverse logic. Um and I do you do you find that that kids have that nowadays? Because I, I grew up with that sort of I I don't know that was ingrained in 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 my upbringing too. Like if you just work hard, you'll get ahead, and uh, and and then you just sort of make assumptions about those who aren't getting ahead. Yeah, um, and it's not I, necessarily taught, but 
I it's it's implicit and it's taught I th- I think in these surreptitious ways. Um, and I don't know exactly what ki- what kids think on this topic now, but I know like how I thought when I was in high school and as I was studied history and economics a little bit, it really seems to me that this belief yeah. is is ingrained into us as Americans and has been for for many years and many centuries, really since the Industrial Revolution, this kind of language about talking about poor people is undeserving of aid, undeserving of help, undeserving of um, personal freedom and how they spend their money, undeserving of sympathy, uh, whether people believe it's based on some sort of prosperity gospel, like as in people believe that certain people are just innately blessed and God has chosen certain people to be wealthy or whether people become wealthy based on their own personal merits. It's a really emotionally satisfying story to believe in, but really, really, Hmm. really harmful if it causes people to disengage their sympathy for people who are going through hard, hard things and who are going through poverty especially. And I think we have a lot of sympathy for people who are um, not a member of what historians have traditionally called the able-bodied poor, people who um, used to be called the impotent poor, people who were disabled or elderly or sick or injured. There's a lot of sympathy and particularly, I think, Christian and religious sympathy for the people of that class, but a lot less sympathy for people who are the, the working poor. So, you know, Going back in American history, basically, you know, we bring the Chinese over here to build our railroads, and then we just kind of kick them back and go go home, go back to China. Is that is that kind of like just since the beginning we've had these people that kind of the poor people come in do the work, and then the white older folks, you know, a lot of you know a lot of the bigger moguls, oil guys get rich, and it's just sort of been we've always had these different classes of people who are doing the actual hard labor and they're always getting screwed? I I think it goes back further than that, actually, to like the very Puritan roots in our country and um, this idea of Protestant work ethic. And in the, in the early days in the Northeast, it was a very thriving manufacturing and fishing economy. And people who are middle class could really do well for themselves. And there was also a sense of community and the poor were often, if they were not able-bodied, were, were taken care of. And those who were able-bodied were expected to work and could get ahead in that economy. Um, but I think times have just changed, but we've clung to these stories and beliefs. And I actually, I pulled, I'm a history teacher, so I have to do this. I pulled a document from around uh, the end of the 19th century that's a, a sermon by a Baptist minister. Oh, wow. It's super famous. It's called Acres of Diamonds, and I wanted to read a little bit of it, if that's okay. And this is about procreation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about... <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, and this is by a guy named Russell Conwell, who was a conservative Baptist minister, and he also founded Temple University in Pennsylvania. And uh, he gave this speech more than 5,000 times in his lifetime all around the United States and the world. And there's some stuff in it that I think really reflects how Christians thought. Can we just 
make a comment there how lazy yeah. that is that he gave the same speech 5,000 times? <laughs> <laughs> it's he really couldn't. long. I think he memorized it. And <laughs> it, he was really passionate about this message, and it was really impactful on how Americans thought. Um, but I, this is just an excerpt from it. So I don't have the whole thing taken in context, but um, I'll read it to you, and then maybe maybe we can unpack a little what he's saying. But he says to this sermon in this sermon to a huge crowd of people who paid to get in to hear the sermon. I say you ought to get rich, and it is our duty to get rich. How many of my pious brethren say to me, do you, a Christian minister, spend your time going up and down the country advising young people to get rich or to get money? Of, yes, of course I do. They say, isn't that awful? Why don't you preach the gospel instead of preaching about man's making money? Because to make money honestly is to preach the gospel. That is the reason. The men who get rich may be the most honest men you find in the community. Oh, but says some of the young man here tonight, I have been told all my life that if a person has money, he is very dishonest and dishonorable and mean and contemptible. My friend, that is the reason why you have none, because you have that idea of people. The foundation of your faith is altogether false. Let me say here clearly and say it briefly, though subject to discussion, which I have not time for here, 98 out of 100 of the rich men of America are honest. That is why they are rich. That is why they carry on great enterprises and find plenty of people to work with them. It is because they are honest men. Then he goes on to say, some men say, don't you sympathize with the poor people? Of course I do. I won't give in, but what I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be with is very small. To sympathize with a man whom God has punished for his sins, thus to help him when God would still continue a just punishment is to do wrong, no doubt about it. (laughs) And we do that more when we help those who are deserving. While we should sympathize with God's poor, that is those who cannot help themselves, let us remember that there is not a poor person in the United States who is not made poor by his own shortcomings. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, that's, a, that's some mm. disdainful um, criticism of, of, of poor people. Matt was supposed to argue the, uh, <laughs> the uh, rich man's side of this. <laughs> because Matt is like rolling in the biscuits. Yeah, right. So. No, I'll, I'll def- I can defend rich people. I, I mean, I can defend both sides. What, what I think... And maybe you can speak a little bit to this, Sarah, is that we have a tendency in our in our culture to be a bit dualistic. I think it's just Western yeah. thinking, right? It's either or. Yes. And so it's either that poor people are lazy or wealthy people are evil. Yeah. And and we kind of broad stroke groups. And I think we've seen a lot of political movements lately that have kind of been built on a bit of mistrust of the one percent the one percent right sure um occupy wall street etc or or uh mistrust of the political academic elite which i I would argue that that really helped trump's campaign so we're talking about like bernie sanders versus trump kind of both built on these broad generalizations of what whatever the elites are what what they're doing to our country and i think probably it's a little bit more complex than just um you know poor people are lazy or rich people are evil you know and i don't know how we can unpack that but i feel like the thing i hear more often is not people directly coming out and saying poor people are lazy or poor people are undeserving of help but it happens a little bit more 
um, in a little bit more subversive ways. Like I remember, and I, I have to say, I'm the I'm the daughter of a banker. My dad is very conservative. He's a part of the economic elite, um, but he never he never taught me that it was wrong to give money to the poor or that it was wrong for the poor to have a chance to get ahead. And in fact, I regularly saw him um, like giving cash to people who were begging on street corners. And that was the example that was set for me. But I noticed a little later when I was um, on a youth group ministry day in downtown Sacramento, I had some cash in my pocket and I went to go hand it to uh, a man in the park who was begging for money. And I got scolded by a, a youth group leader. And I remember her saying, never give money to the poor. Give them food, but never give them money. And I remember finding that really confusing when I was younger. I felt a little bit ashamed for the first time that I had done something wrong. And then I also felt confused about why that would be. But I remember thinking or coming to learn that poor people, if given money, whether it's from a donation from a passerby or maybe from a from a welfare program of some kind, if if given money, yeah. they are going to waste it. They're going to spend it on something irresponsible um, because if they had real intelligence or real talent or a real, real work ethic, they wouldn't be in that situation to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty, that's pretty standard across the board. That's how I think a lot of our parents' generation feel about things. Um, I, I bet you all of us have gotten into that discussion with... Uh, our elders uh, with the, the same thing. Like, you know, you get down to the nuts and bolts of it and everyone really believes and you got, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the trickle down economics and all that stuff. And so what I see, what I see in this culture is that maybe what's happening with the Bernie Sanders movement is the wealth is consolidating faster than it ever has before. People are, you know, billionaires are mm. getting more billions quicker and the, the middle class is shrinking yeah. and, it's getting harder and harder for, you know, the poor and the rich are, there's a huge divide now. And our parents' generation is maybe one of the last generation that has a, a decent amount of money. So it's easy for them because they're all getting, re- they're all retiring and they're like, look, you know, these basic, you know, principles of economics work. But when they bought a house, they didn't have, you know, this crazy inflation that we have now. You know, mm-hmm. and, and everything is way more expensive for this generation than it was for them. So I, I can see this being in my in my life. It's been a huge debate, constantly debating like things are different now. You know, it's not as easy for this generation to even buy a home, let alone. Well, well and I, own, I right? think also with with how the economy's been really since the 80s is so much economic policy has been geared towards um Helping people and helping economic um, programs or um, sectors that already benefit certain people who are members of certain classes. And so when economic policy has been really, really geared towards not helping um, keep the middle class strong or helping um, lift people out of poverty, um, instead we see a whole economic policy geared towards um, tax reform or um, helping interest rates or uh, rehabbing the housing market. And all of that stuff does help the economy, but it doesn't help the people at the bottom who already have to have a certain amount of um, of 
uh, money and assets and um, and savings to be able to participate in those institutions in the first place. Right, right. Yeah. There's poor, yeah. which is like there's the there's the poor like college student who like who who really has nothing to lose, who can like bet the farm on his future. Because yeah. he's got an education and maybe as parents, he can sleep on the couch or whatever. And then there's poor where there's like, there is just no way. There's no opportunity. There's no one you know. You're going to be homeless. You know, you have to take the job, whatever job you can get. Or, you know, or, and then you have to, it, like, it kind of keeps you down in this perpetual state of cyclical yeah, poverty. You can't, you can't get ahead. And uh, also, I think... It keeps these particular people. It was pointed out in an article that I shared in my um, my Facebook comment that part of the reason there may be a lack of sympathy for the working poor is because these people are largely invisible to society. Um, they're not hanging out at barbecues on the weekend, getting to know their neighbors. They're not um, meeting you at church because they're working all the time long 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 hours right and so the we don't single have mom, single mom works two jobs you know yeah that that type of thing yeah there are natural places for people who aren't in that circumstance to connect with people who are and so it's really hard to listen and sympathize with someone whose experience you can't possibly imagine but i i would just like yeah. to see people try to imagine themselves in that situation but it seems particularly hard for people to do so yeah yeah I, I you know have you have you heard have you listened to that podcast more perfect i think it's more perfect yeah yeah they were talking about that that like everything for poor people is 30 to 40 times more 40 percent more expensive like insurance and, and we've talked about this before on the podcast where it's really hard to kind of climb out of the hole when the hole is so much deeper than the average person and you know <laughs> that's that's the argument so much time because hollywood and i would say this Hollywood loves these movies. Hollywood loves yes. Cinderella. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, like, what, wasn't that Will Smith movie where he was this poor guy on the street? Yeah. Pursuit of Happiness. What, Pursuit of Happiness, yes. yes. And that's actually got the title that's super American, so there you go. But we, we sort of all fantasize, like, we, we all look at the one case where, see, this guy had nothing, and he invented this thing, and now he's a multimillionaire. And it's like rags to riches. I know I'd go from rags to riches if you would only say you care. And though my pocket may be empty, I'd be a millionaire. May still be torn and tattered, but in my heart I'd be a king. Well, we've all we've all read Outliers, right, by Malcolm Gladwell, and you realize that, like, when you break it down, you look at the people who kind of did these amazing special things, and you realize that there were there was so much luck involved, there was so much um, just opportunity at the right moment. If I were just to read Sarah your thing and say hard work, you know, essentially and just and just assume what you're what you're saying here is hard work does not equal success. 
I mean, the argument on the other side is, well, that's not necessarily what you want to tell kids, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's exactly what I mean. I think, I (laughs) I think, uh, I think that hard, hard work is a virtue and, and it's, it, I'm really, I've been like obsessed with reading about and trying to read, um, Adam Smith lately, who was the author of Wealth of Nations, which was kind of the foundational work on capitalism, and it was published back in the 18th century. And what people who love Adam Smith often um, argue for this kind of selfish, greedy capitalism where right. they believe, you know, the, the, guiding, the guiding hand of um, self-interest, the invisible hand of self-interest is going to guide our economy um, right. to where yeah. it needs to go. But well, Adam Smith... So- yeah, but in in some senses, I I mean, I mean, if you just look at the last hundred years or so, you know, poverty and starvation, like those numbers have just all but gone away, and so the the raging capitalists would say, well, that's capitalism, sure. that's that's how that worked, you know, sure, it actually yeah, helped, and you know, the rising tide did lift all totally boats, in a way. What Adam Smith before ever falling into economics was a was a moral philosopher, and and what he predicted about about capitalism um, largely came true, especially on an international like macroeconomics level um, because he was re- rea- reacting against this kind of trade protectionism that was causing a lot of poverty and a lot of social problems. Mm-hmm. But he wanted he believed that that capitalism and his principles of um, supply and demand and also human psychology and human morality, um, did not did not absolve people from needing to be moral beings and also developing like a a strong sense of inner inner virtue. And right. for him, virtue uh, one virtue is is work ethic and ingenuity and creativity. And um, another virtue is is charity and awareness and understanding how your actions impact everyone in your supply chain. And so right. he he's been I think misinterpreted by people who are either very progressive in their economic ideas and very um, traditional uh, conservative yeah. conservative or what used to be called classical liberal in their economic views um, because they misunderstand that Adam Smith is also saying um, capitalism is not a free-for-all. Um, it's, it's a privilege for people who, um, who have developed that inner sense of personal virtue so work ethic is good work ethic's a virtue so is charity and so we should be not tearing down one or the other but like really you know and i and i think that's what i really liked about the opening line of your paragraph is because it wasn't really like it wasn't really the attack it was the the idea that um if I have money, it means I worked hard. But it's more than what you say after that. It says, but if but if you don't have money, it means you didn't work hard. I think that's where we go too far. The inverse assume, logic. Yeah. yeah, we assume the people that don't have money don't work hard. And, you know, and Matt and I, you know, and, and, and for, for a lot of reasons, you know this too. Like, we worked so hard for so long. And then some bands had the scene fairy tap on them. And those bands, <laughs> and those bands blew up and made millions of dollars. And, you know, there's people I know that I was on tour with them, and then two years later, they're winning Grammys, and they're making millions yeah, writing I songs know. for huge artists. And, and the difference between my work and their work, we did the same thing. We were on the same <laughs> labels. 
we were with the same songwriters, we were in the same system, yeah. and they yeah. just happened to do something a little different, and it took off. So, and that's yeah. that's the difference between millions of dollars and being you know, poor, cr- cranking out thirty grand a year, hopefully. You know, but that's but that's uh, why I say. I mean, because they do all these tests, right? So they say, like, one of the biggest predictors for success has always been kind of IQ. Like, you can see successful people have a higher range of IQ. Um, But then now there's all these studies coming out that say there's this other predictor, which is grit, which is basically just perseverance towards Mm -hmm. a goal long term. But how how do you... And you can have a lower... You can have a lower IQ or IQ doesn't really even matter if you have a, a high a high amount of grit or perseverance towards a goal over a long period of time. And you have a, a clear goal and you keep you keep going at it and you keep going at it. And those people, that's like even a higher predictor of success. And so I think it's it's tough because like on one hand, you want to tell kids work hard so that you can achieve. You don't want to tell them, listen, no matter what you do the man is going to keep you down. <laughs> you know, you don't have the best school and your parents aren't that rich and you don't, you know, you don't really have a lot of opportunities in your neighborhood. And you got that weird birthmark on your face. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it's not going to work out for you. And that's kid. just me being, that's just me being the, the, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate. Well, yeah. Like, you know, you want to teach kids grit, persevere, no matter what your circumstances is, try to make the best. Of yeah, sure. You know? And I think yeah, that's how, a little bit different question than like, than like, what causes poverty? Right. You know, it's it's a different conversation to have with kids. And I think part of the problem is we're conflating all these issues and and the the origins of all these stories and beliefs and assumptions we have about culture, about ourselves. We don't often stop to pause and ask, like, where did this belief come from? And it's true. Like when my last point that I made in the in the comment was that I really needed, I had a lot of things going for me. I had a lot of um, cards in my deck when I was starting out life. My parents paid for my undergraduate college. My grandparents helped pay for graduate school. I didn't have to work a full-time job when I was in school so that I could get good grades and graduate near the top of my class so that I could Mm -hmm. go to a good graduate school so that I could get a good job after school. Like I have my job now because of everything that was put into place for me. And I think the work ethic that I had that was really important to my family and teaching us prevented yeah. me from squandering what I was given and making right. the most of it. But it's I can't compare myself to someone who did not have those things. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My my sister says the same thing and she's got a PhD and she speaks several languages and she lives in China and does all this. She works stuff. hard, I bet. She works really, really hard, but <laughs> she she came up in a family where kind of like our parents just kind of threw us out there to the wolves and didn't really um she they're, they're kind of like figure it out. Um you know, do well. We've we've set you up. We've yeah, given you a, yeah. a varied experience and we I, we had a really good, you know, varied experience. We were in tons of little groups and clubs and you know, we we knew how to work hard and we and we were given opportunity, but we we didn't have that constant support through school and and so she she's looking at her kind of peers and other people that she's studying with and and noticing that the kids that got the opportunities were the kids that had parents who were like just super involved in in providing um, yeah. these opportunities for the kids and and just just the little inside scoop and the and the counseling as to like what 
what this board wants to see and what sort of extracurriculars and what papers you should write and like just all those kind of details that she had to just figure out blindly by herself because she didn't have the support these other kids had and then and then she's just watching them go off and have like way better opportunities than her because of the support system that happens in the music industry too you see parents like buying their kids onto tours and (laughs) he you know keeping them afloat (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, I, was, true. I was actually thinking about this the other day, like how Sherwood, when Sherwood started, we were all from pretty upper middle class white families. And, you know, we got, I, I would say we got like $5,000 loans from our parents to start the band. Oh, good for you. We never got and, that. Yeah. <laughs> but I boiled. But we, we, we paid it all back. We paid it all back. Oh. We were pretty hardworking because we would throw our own shows in San Luis Obispo and uh, I would rent the room. I would negotiate it all and we would get like, you know, we would throw our own shows and that's how we would make, we made, we would make about 1500 bucks a show and then we would use that money and throw it back into the band. We'd pay off our debts. But if we didn't come from those families, I don't know if we would have been able to be a band because yeah. I don't know if we would have had a instruments. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we would have been able to go to that college. Right. Yeah. Um, there was just so many factors that were that were involved, and you think you think Malcolm Gladwell when you think that, like, how much music are we missing out on because so many yeah. great artists just can't even afford the tools to. Well, create. there's there's that there is there is the nurture aspect of their environment and and whether or not, but then there's also the other the other aspect that I was talking about grit, which is like how many people are just incredible songwriters and shred on guitar and never leave their garage because yeah, they just but, don't jerks. have the. You know. But Nate, I feel like you and and Dan and Mikey, you guys had grit and a lot of ingenuity in your Cal Poly days, and you did leave school. You took up every opportunity you could. You toured. You lived off of frozen burritos for like years sure. and years. You guys had tons of grit, and and you went because of that. You went farther than any other band in San Luis Obispo ever. And right. I think what's hard too about this whole conversation is. <laughs> I forgot about him. Cursed um, Weird Al. Yeah. You'll yes. always be compared to Weird Al <laughs> the rest of your life. But oh, no. we compare, like, be- our country's huge, and poverty and wealth are not distributed e- equally geographically, and opportunity is not distributed equally geographically. And so, right. you you know, if, yeah. there's, if there's, like, 10 privileged you grow up musicians. In Fresno, your life's different than if you grow or, up in yeah. Orange County. Yeah, or like if you grow up in, I don't know, rural Missouri, you're going to be, oh, yeah. uh, there's going to be different opportunities that are going to come your way than if you grow up in Silicon Valley, you know? And so right. it's really hard sure. to compare a musician from slow to a musician who grew up in Nashville with like well-connected parents. Right. Or so- New York City or something like that. Yeah, so you so you would, so Sherwood's a grit band. <laughs> You well, are. you did really. You did have a good opportunity where you were where you grew up. I would say, well, and I so combined about, with yeah. grit, that worked. Okay, so here's here's an example of grit. I remember we were one of the only bands on Warp Tour with with a credit card machine, and this is like 2004 before everyone had. You guys would pay like what a, something like a hundred and something dollars a month to have that thing, and I'm like, those guys are insane. That's so much money. <laughs> before there was so square. this is what we did though. I remember. <laughs> But this is like an example of grit, and I'm not a I'm not a good student by any means. Like I got into college somehow 
and got my way through. I, I just schemed my way through through school, basically. Um, but I I noticed there was like a hundred people at in line at Warp Tour waiting for the ATM machine. So I rolled up to him and I said, "Hey, if you buy my album, I'll give you cash back." <laughs> I I sold a hundred albums in an hour, <laughs> right? Like. Like everyone's standing there watching these hundreds of people struggling to get cash out of this machine. I'm like, guys, yeah. we've been on the Warp Tour for 10 days. We have $10,000 in our yeah. van. We can deposit it all and make money. I'd say that's <laughs> ing- I'd say that's ingenuity as well, just seeing an opportunity and then being at the right place at the right time and then having but having the, the the creative idea to execute it. But it's Absolutely. just I would say that some people are just lucky like, hey, if we put a glowing LED light in a in a toilet bowl, we can sell this on Shark Tank. It's this dumb idea, <laughs> but they make millions. You know what I mean? Like it does. I don't know. Sometimes I think idiots make millions of dollars. Like it doesn't really require. I, I don't know. It's also not like it's. I think my whole point with it with the. Um, I'm just trying to make this entertaining. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> the the problem is too that I think it's just an oversimplification. Like. Grit, grit. Yeah, it's awesome. There's examples of how grit has caused the woman to invent Spanx when she was a single mom in her one bedroom (laughs) apartment. Like, that's amazing. But that is such an uncommon scenario. It's exception to the the rules. We love those stories because they also connect with our American cultural mythos about entrepreneurship and right. pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But when it's the expectation that anyone should be able to do that, when that's like right, a mathematical yeah. impossibility, yeah. the reality is most people, when they work extremely hard, can probably only slightly improve their uh, class mobility within their lifetime. Right. So huh. you there's class mobility, but if... But you're, we're unlikely to jump from like the very poor people living well below the poverty line up to making a billion dollars. Right. And the very poor people, when they work as hard as they possibly can and make use of all of their resources, are only likely, if at all, to graduate from very poor to just regular poor. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, I was reading a study that said that, that the, and you you spoke to this a little bit, there's a bit of a... It's that pioneering American spirit of the American dream, the rags to riches type thing where where we've people have moved here because they thought that there would be social mobility. Like you could come yeah. here and it's still it's it's relatively true. I mean, the, the, the heart of it's still there. Immigrants come here. They work really, really hard. And then their their kids are the PhDs. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and that and so there is the social mobility. But what we found in, in recent years, and you can probably attest to this, is that um We've been outranked by other countries. So so I was just reading a study that said like Canada and Denmark um, uh, have way more social mobility. Like a poor person in those countries has a way higher chance of becoming successful than in than in the U.S. Would, it, would that be because I didn't read the article that Canada and Denmark also have more of a social safety net for the poor? Is there a relationship there? I don't know if there's a relationship, and I wanted to ask you about this too because I was looking at um, I was looking at the spending on welfare, and I'm uh, you know I'm not I'm not attacking the whole concept, and I, I don't even know if there's a correlation here. But they they said so basically poverty and starvation rates have plummeted in the last hundred years, and poverty in uh, America in the in America and 
and worldwide, I think, actually. Well, but definitely in in developing countries. That's right. absolutely true. I just wasn't sure if that was true in the United States. Well, yeah, if you th- since I the mean, depression, the, since the depression, yeah, I don't know what they were like before that, but I but I think they're. I, I mean, I was looking at some graphs and they look like they've been down. They, now, here's the yeah. problem. They've stayed, the poverty rates have stayed the same for, since like the 80s, mid 80s. Um, and, you know, the war on poverty, whatever, that 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 was kind of 10 years previous to that. Yeah. And so they, we, they haven't really gone down. But what's happened is this, the um, means tested welfare spending has gone up in the last yes, 20 years. Yes, by a lot. By it's a lot. It's gone up a lot in the last 10 years, last it it continues to go up, right? So that that's what I'm saying is like what works because here here we have Canada and Denmark and I live in Canada right now and I love it. I've got my free healthcare and everything, um, but like <laughs> they, these countries. But spend you a have lot to wait in a line their... for six months to get any healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right? These countries spend right? a lot, and I'm on. I'm listening to like that's local argument, Canadian right? Uh, right? radio. Well, that's what they say, yeah. But I, I'm listening to local Canadian radio, and they're talking about the budget, and they're talking about where all the money's getting spent, and it's getting spent on all these things that, like, I'm just laughing because I'm like, U.S. would never spend money on that. Yeah, you know, like yeah. just all this special training and all this, and uh, but 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 for uh, at the same time, they're spending it in a way that seems to provide poor people with more social upward mobility. So what works when it comes to because because it doesn't really seem like it's working in the U.S. at least when you look at the stats and I don't know if those yeah. really tell you the truth. Well, like that's kind of like a I know that um, federal assistance went up across the board in the United States when the recession hit, and so right. we are still recovering from that absolutely. And uh, many, many, many people, including people who had previously been wealthy, were applying for social programs like disability. And so there's also there's certain programs that are primarily meant for um, the poor who are not considered able-bodied poor. And then there are programs that are designed for um, able-bodied, low-income adults. Um, and those are food stamps, Medicaid, cash welfare, housing assistance, and tax credits. And so um, right. a lot of the spending or um, <clears throat> decreased revenue, I should say, has come through um, right. tax credits, uh, which conservatives actually tend to like which more. I, which I – yeah, I like I like them because for every kid I got a 1000 bucks. Yeah, yeah. I – Every time I had a new kid, every time I had a new kid, I was like, "Well, at least I get a thousand bucks on my taxes." Hey, hey, guys, <laughs> Nate here. I believe we can biblically procreate in any position, but uh, I wanted to say that I think some of the arguments that come around around white privilege, like I see, um, I have some friends who are like you know blue collar workers, and they post memes, and I always just want to like write on them, like hmm. this is terrible or whatever. Yeah, uh, like one of them was like, "Don't tell me about white privilege until you wear out two two sets of these boots every year." And it's like, this <laughs> and I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm like, I, I'm like, no, no, you you get to wear out boots. That's <laughs> that's, that's part of the privilege, right? <laughs> like you you get to wear those boots out, like, and you make a hundred grand a year wearing those boots out <laughs> but my brother right my brother works for the city of sacramento taking it all the way back to shotwell's roots oh yeah and my roots too Sacked and he says so my brother works for the city and his biggest complaint we talk a lot he goes look 
and, and, and I, and I know why my brother has these opinions. He goes, look, Nate, I'm in the city all day, every day mowing lawns. So my brother's part of, of drainage and uh, he, he, he does a lot of the mowing. He takes care of the canals and he keeps the water flowing when, when it rains um, and stuff like that. And he sees, he's like, I'm in the middle of the city all day long and nobody's got jobs. Nobody, nobody's working. Everyone's hanging out, doing stuff. And I, and he has this perspective of like, who, who is everyone? Oh, like people downtown. Yeah. Wandering around. He's like under bridges and people are like hanging. He's just like, he's working a job. He's out there every day, getting up at 5am fighting traffic and going and mowing the grass and doing this stuff for the city. And he's just constantly running into people in the middle of the day who aren't working. And so when we talk, a lot of the conversations are, look what this welfare state has done. Look what the liberal California welfare state has done for the people. It's, it's, it's it's made everyone hate or, or it's un it's it's not incentivized people to work hard or whatever so what do you have to say to like that that's the because i think that's the big uh right-wing thought is that everyone on welfare is just sitting around all day smoking weed on their porch there is <laughs> there is that that happens in this country and i think what is problematic is developing a sense of prejudice toward the poor where you've had an experience um, yeah. or you know someone who dot, 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 and you apply that to an entire class of people in a huge nation, right. people you can't possibly know. And the reality is, is I think people would be surprised at how many people they know who they find respectable people who have accepted or relied upon government aid at some point in their life or their childhood. Yeah. And yeah. whether that's well, it's like, it's disability same, it, or food stamps or whatever, I have friend, a close friend whose parents were immigrants and they had welfare when they first came to America. It helped them get started. And now they are thriving in, in society. And most people accepting government aid accept it for less than two years. So this idea right. that, that people are on welfare for life is, it happens, but it's unusual. And in most cases, it's single moms with multiple children. I was there to match my intellect on national TV against a plumber and an architect, both with a PhD. I was tense. I was nervous. I guess it. It's the same thing. I would always, I would always tell people. It's the same thing as saying, like, you know, um, all all immigrants are criminals. It's like, well, yeah. no, some of them are, but some of them are moms, and if they're illegal, their kids are legal. And yeah. if, if you, college students. And if you deport them, their six year old children will be a ward of the state. <laughs> like you can't, you know, you have to understand there's a complexity here. You can't just say all, and that's what goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. The sort of broad stroking. 
Um, yeah. It doesn't work. It's a very complex issue. And to say all rich people are bad or all poor people are lazy, that's just lazy thinking. You know, it's just it doesn't really get to the heart of the issue. And it just really I think it divides and, and keeps our I don't know, our, our defenses up for 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 real change and really thinking it through. We almost have to come up with like these stupid terms like YOLO. You only live once. YOLO. But it's like, yo, Wadi. <laughs> YOLO. You only welfare two years. Yo, Wadi. You know, like, <laughs> just like to get the social awareness out there. Like, oh, yeah, the average person only is on welfare for two yeah. years. Yeah. I think I, I think those stats are great and I think they're helpful and I think they remind us that yeah, we do have friends that are And it remind us that like uh I was talking to my friend Paul the other day and he was ta- telling me about this government subsidy he got for buying this fancy hybrid car. And <laughs> rich people get government entitlements all the time. And sure. that that's like a interesting thing that we don't often think about is the fact that when a wealthy person gets laid off, they very frequently go and apply to unemployment. Oh, yeah. Why, all my, why wouldn't all my, they? You all know? my friends who get laid off get their unemployment and they get the max amount because they had a good job. Unemployment <laughs> is a welfare program. And right. they would not call it welfare because there's a stigma there and right. cultural shame. It's unemployment. Which Well, in their, in their mind, they're like, I paid into it, man. Totally. You know, <laughs> I'm going to take out. One thing everyone goes, everyone's got an Obama phone, you know? A what? And an Obama phone. I heard have not this? heard this. No. Okay. So <laughs> there was like this program that Obama put out that, you know, that poor people could get a smartphone through this Obama initiative to like help people get phones and I guess get on the internet or whatever. And it's become sort of a, a thing that conservatives drop. I'm surprised you haven't heard it, but you probably don't hang out with too many right-wingers. <laughs> it's, well, I wonder, <laughs> But it's, I used to work before smartphone days at Cal Poly. I used to volunteer at this place. It's called the Prado Day Center here in San Luis Obispo. And yeah. one thing I never thought of before was how can a person who's living in their car if they don't have a cell phone or they can't afford one, it, how can they apply for jobs if they cannot right. take a phone call for a job interview? Like we we have so many That's things true. that we take for granted every day. And sure. if you don't have a shower, how can you get a job? If you go right. into a job interview smelling like you haven't had a shower in a month. like Hey, I did it on Warp Tour. All right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Everybody can get a job if I was able to get through that, Sarah. Right. You gave no. me a job. You gave me a job on the Hanson tour and paid me ten dollars a day. <laughs> hey, I was talking about paid, a cycle I was, of poverty. A dollar an paid. hour. Hey, we were getting <laughs> poverty begets <laughs> poverty. This is funny because I actually just sent this information to a band that was complaining about the the deal on our current tour that we're doing in two weeks. The bands have to sell tickets, and he was like, "This is terrible. I can't believe you're actually doing this." And I said, "I got paid two hundred bucks a night to open for Hanson." Seven people in a van, nine years into my career, <laughs> making seventeen fifty after everything was done. So don't complain to me, bro. <laughs> so it's you got so ten true. bucks, Sarah. I got seventeen fifty. These young I musicians, think it's pretty good. These young musicians are so entitled. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I was just like, dude, I don't want you on the show anymore. Too bad. It's 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 over with. But so, Sarah, <laughs> yeah, Sarah, anyway. I had a question. Um, sure. How do you? Uh, 
how do you see the the debate? Is it we look at the outcomes and we say, okay, we need to make sure that um, like there's just been this thing with uh, Google where they're looking at their um, percentage of you know, women that they hire, et cetera, et cetera, or percentage of people of color, et cetera. And they're going, okay, well, the outcome is we don't have, um, it doesn't reflect the population base. And so we need to fix that outcome. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's that debate versus, no, we just give everybody the opportunity and we hire, we hire based on that. What is kind of your your stance on that? Like, and how do you how do you implement this? Do stuff? you mean like, like specifically? In well, Go I don't know in for Google. Maybe not for Google, but like, I mean, STEM's a whole different thing, and that's oh. a, that's a tough one. But but like geographically, how do you go into let's let's say a poorer neighborhood in um, southern Detroit and give them the equal opportunity? to achieve and how do you even measure that what what a suburb of san francisco would have right i know? haven't i really don't know <laughs> i just know that economic vitality of our different regions has changed a lot and so it's reality that there's more poverty in the rust belt than there is along the west coast so right. when I'm thinking about geography, I'm thinking less in terms of neighborhood, which absolutely has an impact. And I'm thinking also like regionally, mm. there are people who just don't have good job opportunities in their education level where they live. They just don't. Right. And I think that town when towns like start to, I remember, remember Nate, when you guys were living in Oakland? Oh man, we were living in the... Yeah. Ghetto. Okay. So, so bad. That neighborhood was so unsafe. And I remember going to a Starbucks that was like on the corner of Alameda and um, Oakland. Yeah. And there were news articles everywhere in, in uh, the Starbucks about how just having this Starbucks in that very bad neighborhood had created a, a little bit of economic vitality for the community. Wow. Because wow. there were several people who now had jobs with healthcare in that neighborhood who were going to work. The community had a safe place to go. Kids had a safe place to go work on their homework. There were community bulletin boards for job postings. And at that time, I was in like a very anti-corporate mindset. Um, sure. I was in college and hated Starbucks, blah, blah, blah. But there wasn't any other coffee shop in Oakland. And I remember being really challenged by that idea that – it's it, capitalism, money, economic vitality, business development. All of that is really, I think, the long-term cure for poverty. Well, then there's the problem of gentrification where you get enough coffee shops in an area, it drives the real estate up, and it pushes the, the poor sure. people out. Nashville. <laughs> it totally. Yeah. That's right. my so it's like there's right a now. critical mass with that. Which is where you where you go? Okay, capitalism, but you need to regulate it. Is that what you essentially say? Like, oh, you have to regulate the hell out of it, right? <laughs> yeah. I all of these. It's like what you're, the point you're making is like one solution begets another problem, and I think right. it's really, really true. Which is why it's kind of one of the reasons why we have to constantly be on it and understanding how our culture and society is changing, how our economy is changing, and not rely on old ideas about about sources of wealth and poverty that are dated and no longer applicable, perhaps. Right. I Even worked myself through college and bought a house because yeah. a house was $8,500. <laughs> 
Maybe the maybe the notorious B.I.G. wasn't talking about himself, but he was talking about capitalism. More money, more problems, yeah. right? The more money in the bank in the system, the more problems we have, not individually. But I, I do want to bring up this one point. And before we, I do that, I want to shout out my new term, Yawafti, the only welfare two years. <laughs> Spread it around, folks. Spread it around. It's going to take off. Yawafti, the only welfare two years. Um. I want to think of something in my own mind that's changed my opinion that 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 I can think to to apply to this. I used to think Planned Parenthood was the devil, right? It was terrible. But when you but when I started actually actually being willing to listen to the conversations on the other side, the numbers of abortions go down when women have assistance and they have somewhere to go and someone to turn to, right? Mm-hmm. And if I was just to apply this idea that I had that all people who get pregnant out of wedlock are evil from, you know, just, they're just gonna, they just wanna get rid of this baby. If I bring that mindset into this, I, I will, you know, I had so many friends, you know, like arguing on Facebook, we need to defund pr- Planned Parenthood. And I was just like, actually, statistically, that causes more abortions. I know, but it just, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, at what point do we begin to change? Like what? Uh, uh, when? Because I I just changed my opinion. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, Planned Parenthood does provide abortions, but it actually helps less abortions happen. Abortions are going to happen. Poor people are going to exist. But how? Sometimes we have to embrace some of these things that totally go against our preconceived ideas. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Right? Like, yeah. And that's just something I think of offhand that I used to have this very conservative view of Planned Parenthood. And now I think if it's, it's necessary to help stop abortion, but people don't people can't see that fact, you know, so. Totally. And I, so I think I'm just wondering, yeah. something Matt said earlier about everything being so dualistic and binary and how we see the world is that there's always this either or argument. And you hear it mostly from Christians who love capitalism, where you hear, well, if we didn't have a social safety net, the church would take care of the poor. And, um, you know, altruism (laughs) should come from personal um, giving, not from the government. And, like, I understand that, but that's Disneyland. That's not real life. And the reality is, like, charity is a beautiful thing. And generosity is a beautiful thing. And sympathy is a beautiful thing. And sometimes people need also like to eat dinner and uh, to be able to pay their rent so that their kids aren't homeless. And it's there's not an easy yeah. solution. I think one thing you pointed out earlier, Matt, is that poverty rates have stayed kind of stable, but welfare spending has gone up. Right. And that's absolutely true. But what's also true is that a lot of welfare reform has happened that's tried to push people out of welfare earlier and getting them off of welfare and working has also not alleviated the poverty rate. Right. And so until working can actually get people out of poverty, they're going to be more inclined, just I think out of common sense, to take right. cash assistance from the government than to go to work if they're not going to be able to get further ahead by working. Right. So it's a it's a jobs issue too, right? And that, and we're we're seeing this massive shift and from, a wages from, issue and yeah, from from manu- manufacturing and 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 moving to more tech and and higher skilled jobs, and that's where you kind of have this 
white middle class or or lower middle class manufacturing jobs in the midwest that have gone and dried up and they're all going to be gone forever because ai is going to take care of all that and then you have this huge issue of like how do you skill how do you uh, train skilled workers and get them into jobs that they're actually making money um yeah and if we truly believe in a trickle-down system of economics with no either um regulatory or moral accountability for major corporations no one is going to be incentivized to try to create jobs for people if yeah. a machine can yeah. do it. Yeah, right now, right now, if you are driving for Uber or Lyft, you are funding <laughs> the self-driving automobiles that will put you out of a job, right? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's like another, yeah, it's another industrial revolution, but the difference is instead of people moving from cottage industry to factory right. work for a crop wage, we are seeing moving people moving from work to like cottage industry if they can find a way to do it right. or from working to nothing and and not knowing what to do or where to turn and having people at the same time want to slash the social safety net that does keep people from starving. This gets to an, a whole a whole other debate that people are talking about and doing studies about and trying to figure it out is the universal basic income mm. uh, thing. Is like w- when we look forward to the future and we see like basically manufacturing is going to get cheap. We, we're going to be able to do it on American soil for cheap. We're going to have AI and like really good robotics to do all these things that human beings have been needed to do, but it, they're just basic assembly line type things with the mass of people that 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 will be exiting manufacturing um, and other jobs, you know, I mean, I already see like the, you know, you get, you can do your order at McDonald's without having to talk to a McDonald's employee. And I'm like, Oh, this is wonderful. Um, and how efficient Matt, you know, like, like eventually that's what just, are you eating at McDonald's for? <laughs> I went there for all the podcast. I went there all the podcasts we've done on this stuff. Egg McMuffins are delicious. McDonald's I'm sorry. in Canada is is quite a bit better. There's hey, no high fructose. If y'all want to die early, that's your prerogative. <laughs> Meanwhile, me and have, my friends, we yo wafty over here, so. We're gonna we're gonna move up the chain. It's not like I li- it's it's not like I live in East Nashville. I can get a good coffee just anywhere. What about this universal base, basic income? And ha- have you seen anything about like whether or not it'll work? Like if if people are making like thirty five grand a year and they don't have to work, but if they want to get ahead, who, that sounds so expensive. Okay, <laughs> I have no idea who's gonna pay for that, but <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Zuckerberg. I love I would love someone to give me thirty five thousand dollars a year for doing nothing. <laughs> But I, I mean, I whatever think it is, based so on many... your like cost of living. Yes, it's, I that, don't know if it's thirty-five yeah. grand, but like it's it's something like very basic, and you take care of everything. You take care of yourself, and if you want to get ahead, you can take a certain amount of that money. You can go live in a cheap place, and then you can invest in your future. But if you don't, you can just sit around and be a vegetable. It doesn't matter because eventually the economy will be run by AI and robots, and we don't need people anymore. So like. But is the argument that that'll help the economy? Like, if everyone had that much well, they more would money have, to spend? No, I mean, obviously, if you if you make a certain amount, maybe you don't get your your UBI income. Yeah. But you know, it's it. They're they're trying to do studies, um, and and see if it works. Yeah, I feel like uh, that's a great idea in theory. I have no idea the details on how that's going to work. Maybe there's a great argument for it. I think the problems that I see 
coming out of that are the same problems that bother conservatives about welfare, but like times infinity. Right. Like who will pay right. for it? Where is that more money going to come from? Um, why would someone want to create a huge business if they're going to be taxed at a rate that they have to sustain the rest of the U.S. population based on their their <laughs> contributions through their tax revenue? It's true. There's very smart people who have thought it through, and I don't know the answers to those questions. But there's really smart people in tech who are thinking about it like a lot, and uh, and it, I'm not one of those people, so I can't. Yeah, really I for feel it. like, but uh, I would like to see that experimented with on a small scale in a tiny country, or yeah, or just on like a community. Like if you just had like, you know, um, what's his face, Elon Musk or someone, just to go, okay, this town. <laughs> Everybody, everybody want to opt in for the universal basic income for two years, and we'll study what you do with your lives or five years or whatever, to, and uh, and see what happens. To be honest, I just kind of think a simpler solution would be some kind of law restricting, I don't know, restricting um, that type of activity of of being able to operate. You know, people buy robots instead of hiring workers because it's more affordable long term over the cost over the life of the machine. And but like, what what about Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs? I mean, he's constantly saying that there's plenty of jobs. Yeah, Japan's economy, and I, I was we were talking about this once too. Um, the trade jobs are always skill jobs. They're always you need to, you need to you need to develop a skill. You need to get a degree. You need to be certified. Um, it's, it's stuff like HVAC mm-hmm. because everybody needs heating, ventilation, air conditioning, plumbing. human beings need that plumbing, Drywall. plumbing, everybody needs a plumber. Like we're not, our plumbing isn't going to change with, electricians. with AI. Electricians, everybody needs to run electrical c- currents into their house. So like these, these jobs are like, there's a, what was it? There was like, how many? 600,000 of these jobs yeah. in the U.S. and people aren't taking them because they're not skilled. Yeah, Mike Rowe is a really good voice for that side yeah. because he doesn't talk. He doesn't talk in a polarizing way, but he but he likes to bring up the fact that, like, look, there are hard, hard work jobs that we've kind of convinced ourselves as a generation that, like, unless you're working for some tech startup, you're worthless. But right. you can actually make more money quicker oh sure uh uh if you if you just take you you could even become an apprentice and work under someone else's license and don't and and make good money those are still very honorable jobs in japan like there's business and finance which is like kind of like the the black suit white collar sector and then there's the trade jobs which is plumbing electrician electricians and uh heating and ventilation and those jobs are like the second tier sure. like they're still like really good middle class jobs and they're very well respected and then there's um then there's the what is the the gangsters basically you have three options in japan my brother told me this <laughs> yakuza that that's what it was so like you're either working for yakuza you're you're in a trade job or you're you're in the business sector so i'm not sure how that relates to the universal income you were talking about no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Different example. Um, yeah, I feel like the trades are still a good option here, and students are more interested in them all the time, and they're also losing a cultural stigma that they may have had. Oh, well, that's like good upper news. middle class families are very interested in their kids having jobs when they're older. 
So they're sending them to trade school. Yeah. As opposed well, to as opposed to like majoring in English or yeah, theater. A lot of the uh, a lot of the smarter people that I listen to on podcasts when they're asked that question, what do you want your kids to do? It's like I just I, I want them to learn a trade. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, yeah, exactly. These um these arts degrees um don't really well, part really of work me, for much more than that. Part of me already even sees that about video editing. Like everyone can do it now. The cameras are getting so much faster and better than anybody that I was kind of like, I, I don't know if I really want to go down that road because like I'm going to be competing against anybody and everybody. And Still subjective though. I mean like, it, yeah, but I a mean, good, you know a saying? good plumber is a good plumber. That's like an objective. Like he fixed the pipe, you know, he's got a, he's got a nice pair of jeans that are just a little too short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like he ca- he came in he gave me a good quote he came he came in under the quote and then he uh he fixed the pipes it's it's a very like you know money in and and job done type of and see this this all goes back to my original question that you know that that just that hard work and missionary position you know just <laughs> being that plumber it, you know that's really what it comes down to is just 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 focusing on that one task and getting it done, right? Right, Matt? Yeah, exactly. Right, well, speaking of uh, wealth, <laughs> Sarah's like, I'm shaking oh my, my head God. at you right oh now. Oh my God, what <laughs> podcast did I come on? This is ridiculous. I have to break it up. Sorry, Sarah, I have to break it up. <laughs> but the I was reading a couple articles and which said that basically wealthy families lose their fortunes by the third generation. So yep. 70% lose their wealth by the second generation and a stunning 90% by the third, according to the Williams Group Wealth cons- uh, Consultancy. Yeah. So if all else fails, <laughs> just wait a few generations. <laughs> the money will get redistributed back into the economy uh, by the by the wealthy elite whose kids, without a, a, enough friction and pressure, eventually blow it all. Well, and that's kind of speaking to something else. We've been talking about how people think the poor are lazy. Right. But what about all the lazy millennials <laughs> who have like everything handed to us? Right. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Are you who are who are ruining their families' accumulated wealth and wasting it? Right. Yeah. There's no friction. There's no. And there's all these articles like basically telling them like how how to speak to your kids about work ethic and like how to tr- teach them and you know it was, it was funny to read that because I was like. Oh my gosh, like that's a real problem. People are like our parents, a lot of our pe- parents of of people in our generation built up a lot of wealth and they're looking at the they're looking at their kids going, "I don't want to give them this. <laughs> they don't know what to do with this." You know, and yep. then they have to give it over cuz they eventually die and then it all, you know, 90% by the third generation is is just gone. Is this what is this have anything that do you guys think biblically like Jesus is talking about something like this when he's talking about the talents? When you bury it in the ground? Yeah, some people, you know, do different things with their talents and uh, they have different outcomes, you know. And I think that fuels a lot of mm. our Christians, you know, sort of preconceived ideas of, of how people, you know, move up and down the system and the ladder. Right. And I don't know if Jesus could be talking about something that's totally existential and not financial, <laughs> but we've read oh. into that. I think you know? he's talking about the kingdom of God. Right. 
Usually he was, Not right? A, no, T.D. Jakes would argue differently, I think. Okay. <laughs> but Osteen but yeah. told me yeah. that it was about money and seeding that money. Yeah. When you seed but the money, you get it back. Jabez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> prayer the prayer of Jabez. Of Jabez. Yeah. But I, I, had, I have one last question for you, Sarah. When you watch Downton Abbey... <laughs> As historian, but as somebody who's also, you know, open-minded, does it frustrate you, or do you get into it? Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah. I love Downton Abbey. But you don't go like these aristocrats. They're you know. Just, they're you so know what I love about side? them? I love they're feeling pressured by the modern economy to to change. Yeah. To change and. <laughs> sell off their land and fire their staff, but they have such a sense of duty and community and family and loyalty to the people who work for them and the people who work on their land. And I feel like that's also been lost a little bit in in a free economy where everyone's out for their self. They're doing these things from a place of tradition and duty to something bigger than themselves. Right. And that's important for people to remember. Well, right. And I would say maybe maybe the middle class uh, blue collar folks who work these manufacturing jobs and are seeing those kind of dry up and the economy ch- change, uh, maybe feel a sense of loss for the good old days when you worked hard and you stayed loyal to the company and sure. you got your pension and what the hell's happening now? You can't. That's that's not the American way anymore. And and so there, you know, for all the good that you know technical progress is is given us, there is a, a loss of that sort of grit mentality, you know. And I I think maybe our parents' generation feels that a little bit. Like, wait a minute, you're only supposed to work a job for a year and a half and then get a new one. Like, yeah, that's that's what it is now, you know. And you lose some of that loyalty and that family. Yeah. Vibe. And the expectation that employers should be loyal to their employees mm, too. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you don't and if you don't believe this, people, and if you're coming from the right side and you just hate all this stuff we're talking about, just remember you wouldn't have the president you have now if his dad didn't give him a million dollar loan. <laughs> I think it was ten million. But you know, true story. True story. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't get that million dollars from your dad, you don't turn it into an M. You know what I'm saying? Though, if he doesn't get that cash, it doesn't happen, right? <laughs> Who knows? It's like Sherwood. Man. If Sherwood wouldn't have got that five thousand dollar loan, maybe. Boy, yeah. maybe. Oh man. No, I mean, we probably would have figured out a way. But 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 you know what I'm saying? Like a little advantage. I don't know. I I really think I really think Trump would always figure out a way. He's like You think Yeah, man. I mean, he he went to TV, he was really successful at TV. He went into politics, he became president. I mean, I don't know. I think there's something persuasive. He he strikes he strikes a chord with a certain people group. Oh, yeah. And sure, I think he, and- he would always do do well at whatever he put his mind to somehow. Don't forget that most of his campaign arguments were very protective of social security, very protective of entitlements for the lower classes. Right. And that's that's why we saw a lot of people 
who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary switched Trump in the general. Right. right. They had a they had a, a definite overlap with their messaging, which was these elites, these these wealthy people want to hold you down and I'll be I'll be your champion. Always yeah. trust the rich guy though. You know what I mean? <laughs> Always yeah. trust that guy. He's yeah. never gonna he's never gonna screw you. Yeah, we need I, another I was, Abraham Lincoln. I, I will say though, I'm that, down. That, that, <laughs> well, you got yeah. me. You got any Abrahams? <laughs> we could just we could just get Daniel Day Lewis to be him. He's not acting anymore. Just dress right? up and run for president. He, he he quit acting. So what else is he gonna do? Come on, <laughs> he's a great actor. He he would make a great president. I'm sure. But oh, I'm sure he would he would at least be entertaining to watch. That's for I sure. drink but, your own milkshake. <laughs> I drink it up. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to say the original quote that you read right when you came on the podcast, um, with with the with the pastor who gave that that sermon five thousand times or whatever. Acres um, of diamonds, it was called. Acres, of, acres diamonds. of diamonds. The birth of the prosperity gospel, right there. Sounds like a Kanye West album. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I will say, I will say that one thing I think that spoke to me that I think that has flipped and flopped in my life. As I've hated corporations, and then go well, but they're helpful, but they're but they're terrible, but they're helpful. Is when he says, you know, a, a good man, a good man is wealthy because he, or an honest man is wealthy because because people trust him, and then he can hire employees and stuff. Is, is that is that partly true? That like that's true. Well, it depends on what people value. Like are yeah. Are more are are more financially successful people honest people or are more financially successful people dishonest? That's, Should we take a survey? What do you guys think? I have what no do idea. you guys think? We can wrap it up with that. What do you what do you, each of you guys think? Are the majority dishonest or honest? Just give well, your opinion and then we can go from there. Okay. My opinion is very brief. Morality in America's changed as far as yeah. what what makes a man, what makes a gentleman. Let's just put that in um patriarchal terms. <laughs> but it used to it, it used to be it used to be something very different and and that was like it was it was implicit that you keep your word that you have integrity that you defend the weak etc cetera, etc cetera. that your handshake like we were talking about this with with John Wayne the handshake was better than a contract you know and now oh, yeah, it's that. it's arguable that that the system of capitalism for whatever good it does rewards those who are unscrupulous in the short term so if you can mm. cheat you can get ahead and to that extent the person who can who can cheat the best wins more yes and um if they can rig the system in their favor even if it's not ethical they can win um and that's often what our banking systems uh, <laughs> you know the stock market like it, it's all just a hustle and so, so nice guy finished last. So it's all about the bottom line, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I think morality and ethics in business, it go, it really does reward the person who's the least ethical. Maybe the the, the sociopath would be the best at earning, um, which is a problem, right? You don't want to reward that sort of behavior. So, uh, yeah, I would say, you good people do become successful but the most successful probably a high higher percentage of those are on the scale of uh sociopath or or some sort of pathology or some sort of um personality disorder <laughs> i don't know what the stats are but that's just i put my money there 
<laughs> Sarah, what do you where do you what do you think, Sarah? And then I'll give my opinion. I feel like money in great quantities has an a an ability to tempt people toward greediness and um, self-interest. So I feel like anyone can be honest, whether poor, wealthy, extremely wealthy, or middle class. But to take a biblical perspective, it seems like the Bible suggests again and again and again that money has a unique ability to corrupt our intentions. Right. Mm. So if we are... Yeah, if we are wealthy, we need to be really vigilant about the ways that's influencing us. Yeah. You know what's funny is like someone said to me yesterday that there was this book that came out that Rob Bell was recommending called um, Bitten by a Camel or whatever. And his whole thing was like the reason why uh, Jesus says that, this is his interpretation or whatever, is that in order to get through the cities, rich people had to stack up all their stuff on camels when they were going into the cities. And the only way the candle could thread the needle, so to speak, is to take off all that stuff and leave it behind so you could walk through the city with just your person. Um, and, and I never heard that before. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, like that guy had so much stuff, it was just bogging him down. So yeah. he, couldn't, he couldn't actually get through the city. He couldn't actually get through the needle. Um, and my thought, I guess my thought is, I'm kind of I'm with Matt that I do believe um, that there's sort of been this moral degrading of society and, and gentlemen. And in fact, in 2016, uh, there were 2 million new cases of gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. So, <laughs> what? what does so, that have to do with it? So we are morally... <laughs> there, there are gentlemen... The gentlemen are not doing... They're just it's it's blame we're, we're Tinder, t- <laughs> oh Tinder generation. We have not the men of this the story have not upheld our end of the deal. So yeah, we're we're ruining it. And I think with that, we're uh, taking the money too. <laughs> My one last thought was that one thing that Adam Smith warned people about as being one of the biggest threats to both our liberty and our prosperity was corporate cronyism and corporate involvement in the government and i feel like that's a particular threat right now whether companies are liberal or conservative leaning their lobbying power in washington and the amount of power Mm -hmm. uh that wealth gives certain people should be concerning everyone right and that was the overlap between trump and and bernie sanders campaign was that they were both like we need to repeal glass steagall and you know, we need to get lobbyists, you know, drain the swamp was Trump's thing. And I was like, I hope he does. But we'll we'll see it. We'll believe it when we see yeah. it, correct? Yeah, that's true, <laughs> though. You're right. You're right, Sarah. We should all be rallying around uh, concentrated wealth and concentrated power. I think those are always bad. And those are always the worst of the bad, I think. Right. Um, highly concentrated power is just... In the political it, system by the wealthy. Yeah. yeah, and to that's favor, why it's to the same the wealthy. now. Yeah. It's the same now because they all get the they. It's just a revolving door of getting the jobs. They're the CEO of the company, and then they work for the government, and then they go back. You know, yeah. and they write the policies that that are going to affect them in a few years. And it's just, 
it's just this revolving door. And, and, and we as citizens just always, yeah, we're taking the bait. We're arguing the dualism. We're arguing the liberal and the conservative. And meanwhile, they're all laughing because we just <laughs> vote because we just vote one of the idiots in every four or five years. And it doesn't matter. There's like, I'll get a job in four more years. I just got to wait for the idiots to vote me back in. And, and it's just frustrating. It's like if we just believed in a third idea. Even just a third idea, we'd be so much better Are off. Are you saying than, third party? Than two. <laughs> if we just got old Johnson in there, <laughs> we'd be doing good. I don't know. No, I'm just, I'm just saying. Why? I don't. Sarah, you're like my little sister. <laughs> All the listeners out there, there has been this weird sexual theme of this podcast. I'm not. I'm not. I, I talk so freely and open because you're like my little sister. <laughs> even on tour with us. I don't know. I just I feel comfortable. I have heard it all, Nate. Like, say yeah. Two and a half months in a van with you. Yeah. I've heard it all. So, was I the bad one? Was I the dirty one? I, I, Nate, I uh, Dan is the worst. <laughs> Hi, Dan. <laughs> what it, what, he doesn't I listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry. He's too busy yelling at people about trying to get out of their dualistic minds. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, Sarah, we really enjoyed this uh, uh, podcast. Is there yeah. anything you would like to say to like conclude? Are you working no, on new projects think... or music stuff or oh. any writing stuff or whatever? Yeah, I've or, or Twitter um, or whatever you want to. Yeah, plug. you can chat me on Twitter at Sarah E. Shotwell and. Um, Instagram at S Shotwell. That's it. Sweet. <laughs> but I am currently writing a YA novel um, that I'm querying right now. So we'll see Whoa. what happens. Whoa. Can I it get like a plot? It actually deals a lot with poverty. Mm. It's like a slightly near future look at the American West like 50 years from now. And my premise is kind of just imagining or kicking around the idea of a totally privatized world where uh, corporations basically have returned to this kind of medieval city state kind of situation. Oh, I love it. Dystopian. Is young adult adult, uh, kind of (laughs) rom-com-ish? There's always (laughs) a Depends on the genre. Young adult is an age range. Not a genre. So oh, okay, okay. you can so have not... rom-coms and you can have horror and you can have sci-fi. And mine is kind of like a romance adventure. It takes place in Montana and uh, in the Rocky Mountains. Okay, so young, ad- young adult <laughs> takes advantage of all, of all the positions. Okay, I'm not going to ask you any more questions about your book. <laughs> we'll just go read it. Just go follow ahead. you on Twitter. <gasps> Yeah, thank you so much, guys. It was fun talking with you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks we for coming it. on and, and putting up yeah. his, up with our crap. We appreciate you. Yeah, we don't really know if we solved any issues or problems with the economy. <laughs> of course, we didn't. But, uh, <laughs> but it's good. It's good to kind of keep the awareness going. I learned some things. And, yeah, uh, and for me, the what it comes down to is not some big policy fix that I can recommend. I don't know anything. I just want to see people look at other people, and and ask. You know, how can I love that person? Right. Poor no broad, rich. no broad strokes. There's no quick fix. These are human beings, and we should look at all human beings and as individuals, and not yeah. as. Uh, and when you think to be prejudiced, just remember, yo wafti. <laughs> <laughs> Only two years. 
The poor people who, did, who, who, who are on it for four years, though. You only really... welfare two years, guys. You wafty. <laughs> it's going to be big. It's going to be the hashtag of next year. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, guys. Sarah. All right. Bye. Hey guys, Nate here, letting you know that I will be on tour with my band Sherwood coming up in the next week. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, hey, I'd like to see that guy or talk to him in, in, you know, at the merch table about Bigfoot or whatever dumb thing he talks about on this show, uh, you can come to a show. We're starting it uh, off in Nashville, Tennessee on October 18th. And from there, we go to Dallas, Texas, up to Oklahoma City, and Kansas City, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Ohio, Akron, to be uh, specific, and then down into Cincinnati. We're going to be out with this band, Motherfolk, and Rookie of the Year. You can get tickets at SherwoodMusic.net. I'd love to see uh, all of you who are fans of this show at the show and talk to you about Don't Feed the Trolls and whatever else you want to talk about. So, Head over to SherwoodMusic.net, grab some tickets, and come see my band play, and say hi. Thanks. Happy,